Merry Christmas, listeners. Welcome to Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. On this podcast, we explore the strange, irrational beliefs that crop up everywhere in our lives. From black cats to astrology, odds are each and every one of us believes something that may seem ridiculous to others. Every week, I use short stories to pick apart these beliefs and discuss what they say about the superstitious nature of humanity. However, not all superstitions are held by millions of people. Some are far more specific. Personal, one might say. Today's superstition belongs to a single man, one of the most influential writers in the English language an author whose eccentricities influenced the way he approached his craft. That man was Charles Dickens. But first, to get to the truth of his superstitions, we'll step inside the worlds he created. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It was a dreary winter day outside the train. Nothing to see but a blanket of English fog broken by the occasional tree. Lawrence Hackett forced his way down the corridor, looking for a compartment that wasn't packed with rowdy university students or tourists traveling east for Christmas. This, of course, was something of a fool's errand. If Lawrence believed there was an ongoing war on Christmas, he would have seen that Christmas was on the cusp of a victory. Green and red and holiday ale flooded the train. Eventually, he compromised when he found a compartment at the end. Its only occupant was an old woman sleeping beneath a tattered overcoat. Lawrence had barely set his two heavy travel cases on the overhead racks when his phone went off. He checked the caller ID and stifled a groan before answering. Hi, Granny. How are you? The voice on the other end was his grandmother, Nell. At 97 years old, she was, quite understandably, still learning how to operate a smartphone. Larry, it's so... Lovely to hear your voice. We were just wondering when you'd be home. Is that the train I hear? Yes, um, yes it is. I I thought I told you I wouldn't be home this Christmas. I have a project, you know, that writing project. 
Larry felt a squirming in his gut, as if he'd swallowed a particularly guilty serpent. He had told his mother this, and had hoped that she'd pass the word along to Nell. Oh, I was really looking forward to seeing you. I wanted to talk about your last short story. I thought it was just gripping. Larry promised to be back for New Year's. He almost meant it too. It's not that Larry didn't want to be with his family for the holidays, it's just that he had a serious problem. See, Larry prided himself on being a writer. In many ways, he resembled exactly what you expect a writer to look like. He was skinny, quiet, with perceptive eyes and a notebook always in his breast pocket. His problem was that he hadn't written a word in that notebook in some time. Dry spells were nothing new, but this one felt particularly debilitating. The end of the year was the deadline for the Pickwick Papers Debut Author Fellowship. He'd been aiming to hit this goal all year, but in order to win, he needed to have something to debut. In his desperation, he remembered something an old mentor had told him. Every writer is terrified about losing inspiration, even Charles Dickens, who was known for being deeply superstitious. This gave Larry a wild idea. If anyone knew how to summon inspiration, it was the man who wrote A Christmas Carol in six weeks. So Larry intended to use this holiday getaway to summon inspiration using the same superstitions that had guided Dickens. It was just crazy enough to work. And as for his family, well, the indulgent nostalgia of Christmas was just not productive. The world is full of failed writers who took too many days off and let their careers die. Larry would not be one of them. The door to the compartment slid open. A young man stepped in. He was a striking sight. He wore a Christmas jumper, baggy pants, and a cap turned sideways on his head. To complete the festive picture, there was a garland around his neck spotted with plastic gems. The kid burst out. Merry Christmas Eve to you fine folks. My name is James Beats, and if you'll lend me an ear, I have a performance for your holiday cheer. Larry wanted to say that he had no intention of lending him any body part, ear or otherwise, but he was not quick enough. His protestations were drowned out by the kids rapping. Go rest ye merry gentlemen, you may call me Jim. And in case you haven't noticed, I ain't no tiny Tim. Christmas bells are ringing, choirs they be singing, but folks missing out cause the Instagram is dinging. I got no problem with the socials. I get it, don't sweat it, but think about the spirit of the season and I bet it. Christmas is a collage, my friends, a montage, a barrage of signifiers signifying the way society be denying. We've gone from pagan to fagan, Dickens in this house making London a Christmas haven. Joy got no denomination, I ain't here to preach for Jesus, I'm here for the love that frees us from ourselves. Larry winced and looked away. The kid was a born performer, but Larry was not in the mood for some tacky Christmas hip-hop, so he stared at the foggy window until the rap came to an end. That's all my friends, I hope you like the show. If you can spare some cheer, let your loved ones know. The old woman, finally awake, applauded. 
With a sweeping gesture, Jim removed the cap from his head. He held it out to the both of them. The old woman dropped some change into the cap. Larry braced himself. No matter how good the show, unwanted train car performances always wound up being a glorified form of panhandling. When the cap came to him, Larry waved it away. Sorry, he said. I bought a ticket to Kent, not the West End. When the train stopped, Larry was up and out of his seat in an instant. He took a short ride to the Airbnb and soon was set up exactly where he wanted to be. In Hingham, in a rustic flat as close to Gads Hill Place as he could afford. The country home of Charles Dickens. Truth is, he hadn't chosen this flat only for its location. Next to the bed was a mahogany desk, one made up to look exactly like the one Dickens used. He had spied this desk on the listing and the coincidence felt too good to be true. This was the sort of desk made for a masterpiece. But first, he had to lay the groundwork. Dickens was apparently known for meticulously rearranging the items on his desk into the perfect position before he started writing. So this is how Larry would begin. Of course, most objects the great author had even breathed on was held in a London museum, so Larry had to make do with stand-ins. He set out a bottle of blue ink. Dickens always wrote with blue ink. A magnifying glass with CD written on the handle. And in place of Dickens' silver goblet, he set out a Dickensian teacup that his grandmother had given him for Christmas many years ago. He laid out a piece of paper and a quill. Everything was ready. Everything except Larry. He just could not bring himself to focus. First he sat, then he paced, then he kneeled in front of the desk like it was a church altar. Nothing seemed to summon the inspiration he needed. It was then Larry realized he'd forgotten one key step. Fishing into his travel bag, he removed an old bronze compass. Of course! the most irrational of Dickens' superstitions would be the one that seals the deal. Dickens had carried a compass with him everywhere he went so that he could sleep facing north. He apparently believed this would keep his inspiration from running dry. Larry looked at the bed. It would require some repositioning. By the time the heavy bed was in position, Larry was exhausted. He threw on some loose pajamas and fell onto the mattress. His notebook lay beside him, ready for immediate access when he woke from his inspiring dreams. Soon, his eyelids grew heavy. Before he knew it, he was asleep. An hour later, Larry awoke to a strange flickering light at the desk. It was a candle. There was a man sitting in his chair, facing away from the bed. He was gray all over, like he was cut out of a black-and-white film and strangely translucent. Larry noticed, with a start, that he could see the man's waistcoat buttons through his ghostly back. It's rude to stare, you know. Larry almost fell out of bed in shock. The man turned towards him, and he felt his breath catch in his throat. Ghostly though he was, the figure incited not terror in Larry, but awe. Sitting before him was the ghost 
of Charles Dickens. Larry stammered. It's an honor to meet you, truly. My name is Lawrence, Mr. Dickens. The ghost rose from the desk and walked up to the bed. There he stood, looming over the young man. Why did you arrange your desk like this? I wanted to see if I could summon inspiration, sir. Larry's cheeks felt hot. This was coming out wrong. He sounded like an overeager student. Like you did, for your works. The ghost laughed then. Larry could not tell if it was in mirth or mockery. It looked down with a twinkle in its eye. During my life, I was called the inimitable Charles Dickens. Do you know what inimitable means? Larry nodded. The ghost shook its head, a curious smile growing. I'm not so sure. You have much to learn, my lad. So much. The ghost stood straight and placed a top hat over its receding hairline. Then it walked backwards and passed through the closed door before Larry could utter another syllable. Larry sat for a moment, utterly confused. He pinched himself. Ow! If this was a dream, it was like no dream he'd ever had. He stared at the closed door in front of him. It was still locked, still perfectly solid. Either the Airbnb host was playing a very specific prank, or his crazy superstition plan had worked. He had successfully summoned the spirit of the great author to inspire him. He grabbed his notebook and rushed to follow the spirit out the door. One way or another, he would have interesting material to work into his book after this. Now, if asked, Larry would have said that he was ready for anything to be on the other side of that door. The problem is, when people say they are ready for anything, they are very rarely telling the truth. Anything being a concept that even the broadest of minds struggle to get a handle on. For instance, our good Mr. Hackett might have been prepared to see another ghost of Dickens, another hundred ghosts even. However, he was not in the least prepared to see the hallway outside his room entirely replaced with a 19th century workhouse. But that is what he encountered there. A dingy warehouse, air thick with the smell of sweat and oil. The laborers bustling to and fro were kids with dirty hands and downcast faces. Rats ran across the floors as if they had rightfully rented the place. Larry stared for a moment in shock. Then he opened his notebook and began scribbling furiously. He didn't have a story quite yet, but what vivid details. Please, sir, can I have some more? Larry looked down to see a boy standing before him, an empty bowl held up. He stammered. Sorry, I don't have any food. The boy lowered his bowl and shrugged. I figured not. You don't look like Mr. Bumble. Larry recognized him. Of course he did. Before him was Oliver Twist, of all people. There was something distinct about him, his face cleaner and his eyes sharper than any of the boys in the warehouse. 
follow me, the boy said. I have something to show you. With that, he was off, running down the stairs and between the workbenches. Not knowing what else to do, Larry followed. Larry and Oliver made their way to the first floor where a portly man sat, going over an enormous ledger. In a small nook not far off was a boy sitting all alone. As Larry watched, he wrapped small pots in a layer of oil paper, then a layer of blue paper, then a string. He'd set each freshly made package aside to work on the next. The scene was so terribly bleak. Do you know who that is? Oliver asked. Larry shook his head and guessed that it was a friend of his. Oliver blinked in surprise. That's young Master Dickens. He works here ten hours a day for six shillings a week. Larry stopped writing. So this is... What year is it? He asked. The boy replied. 1824. His father's in debtor's prison, they say. No one talks to him much, save for Bob Fagan, who taught him how to do the rapping on the first day. Larry had known that Charles Dickens had a rough childhood, but something about seeing this boy, about being immersed in this rotten building, it made him realize more than ever why Dickens had become such a humanitarian later in life. Oliver tugged again on his sleeve, and Larry knelt down. When the boy spoke, his words had a maturity that was eerie coming from a nine-year-old. People of the time thought if you were poor, it was your fault, because you were mad or irresponsible or sinful. Charlie's life here taught him how wrong it was to judge someone's character based on their station in life. His stories weren't great because of superstitions. They were great because he listened to the experiences of those who were ignored by society. This felt pointed, and Larry was moved to defend himself. Hey, I may not have lived in poverty, but I am an empathetic guy. Oliver shrugged. He said, What do I know? I bought a ticket to Kent, not the West End. A chill went up the young writer's spine. He had said this very thing to the rapper on the train earlier that day. He felt overwhelmingly guilty. I see your point, kid, he said. Maybe, maybe I let my ego get the better of me sometimes. Can you take me back to the flat? I think I've learned my lesson. The child grinned, an impish look that Larry didn't like one bit. You're not getting off that easy, he said. Get him, Dodger! In a flash, someone grabbed his notebook right out of his hands. He spun around to pursue the thief, but found himself facing an empty cobblestone street. The warehouse, the rats, Oliver and the young Charles Dickens were all gone. Larry felt cold. He had wanted inspiring dreams, but this was seeming more like a nightmare. He slapped himself, hoping to wake up in his bed. Instead, he found himself staring at an entrance to a theater. 
coming up, Larry meets his own versions of Christmas present and future. Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Larry Hackett didn't remember entering a theater lobby, but here he was, standing amongst dozens of men in tails and top hats and women in full petticoats and bonnets. Their archaic outfits gave him ample clues that he wasn't yet released from his strange nightmare. He had tried to replicate the superstitions of Charles Dickens to help inspire his writing, but instead of an idea for a new story, he had found himself teleported back in time to witness his idol's life. An entertaining exercise, but the purpose of it eluded him. Someone bumped into him. He turned to apologize, but the words died in his throat. Standing before him was a man in a nightgown with a sour expression and a candle in his hand. Larry would know him anywhere. Ebenezer Scrooge! he exclaimed, delighted. Mr. Scrooge frowned, unamused by Larry's delight. He beckoned to him. I'm supposed to guide you through this next part, for all the good it'll do you. Come, there's a performance you're not supposed to miss. Dutifully, Larry followed Scrooge into the auditorium, listening to the fictional character grumble about how going to the theater is a frivolous waste of money. Weaving their way through the audience, Larry raised his eyes to the stage. There, at the podium, was Charles Dickens himself, an adult with a manuscript before him. The crowd fell into a hushed silence as the man began reading. No, not just reading, performing. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. Mind. I don't mean to say that I know, of my own knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined myself to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade, but the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simile, and my... Scrooge scoffed. Look at them, sheep indulging in a man's ego. He'll ramble on like this for hours, and all of them will think their time well used. Larry protested. If you hate his writing so much, why are you here? 
Oh, but he was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Scrooge let out a mirthless chuckle. (laughs) I am as he made me. You, on the other hand, have no such excuse. What does that mean? Am I here to be taught a lesson like you were in A Christmas Carol? Scrooge let one cynical eyeball fall to the notebook in Larry's hand. Well, you are not here to write a masterpiece, that's for sure. Larry bit his tongue. He couldn't believe it. He was being negged by Ebenezer Scrooge. He must have eaten some especially foul turkey the night before. As this thought occurred to him, Dickens seemed to echo it on the stage. Why do you doubt your senses? Because, said Scrooge, a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheats. You may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an underdone potato. There's more of gravy than of grave about you, whatever you are. Lawrence didn't rightly remember seeing the whole Christmas Carol performed. In fact, it seemed as if he blinked and dispelled all of it, the crowd, the author, in an instant. Only he and Scrooge stood in the empty theater. Larry turned to his grumpy companion like an actor waiting for his cue to exit. So, Larry said, A moment ago, I was in Dickens' childhood, and now we're in the height of his fame, maybe 1846 or so. I saw how people adored him. Is that the lesson you wanted me to learn, that even a poor boy like him could become a famous writer? Scrooge snorted and beckoned. He guided Larry up to the stage and through the closed curtains. When the curtains parted, They were not in some dingy green room. The hallway felt like a prison, and the sounds echoing around them chilled Larry to the bones. Human torment was built into the walls of this place. Without asking, Larry knew they were in the walls of an asylum. Scrooge didn't seem bothered by their surroundings, but Larry was positively unnerved. To Larry's great relief, he saw a familiar figure enter, wearing a black coat and signature top hat. His cleanliness stood out in that dank and awful place. There! Larry exclaimed. I know you disdain charity, Scrooge, but this part I know. Dickens was appalled by the treatment of the sick and the poor, so he made it his priority to make sure that institutions like these were more humane. He turned back triumphantly and was met by the steely gaze of Scrooge. Scrooge raised a finger. Humbug, guess again. Larry's mouth tasted like ash. He turned to see Dickens stopping not at any of the cell doors along the way, but at an elegant office at the end of the hall. He stammered, I don't know, research for a book? Scrooge grinned. Not this time. He has begun an affair with a young actress.
adventurous and not only attempts to banish his wife Catherine, but he's also going to try to have her declared insane and committed here. Luckily for his reputation, he won't succeed. At this, Larry's jaw fell. He knew with an impossible certainty that what Scrooge said was true. The hypocrisy was unspeakable. <laughs> Charity always masks some moral failing, doesn't it? It's easy to be kind to strangers, give out money, paint yourself as a paragon. Then, when you're dead, it won't matter how much you made your family suffer. Larry wanted to argue this point. He wanted to say that no man is perfect and that Dickens did change the world for the better. But each of these felt like an excuse, a way of making himself feel better for idolizing the man. Scrooge adjusted his cap and said, I'm afraid I'll have to leave you now. Good luck with the book, Lawrence Hackett. I'll never read it. With that, Scrooge blew out his candle and Larry was plunged into darkness. Quiet and empty. In this void, he sat, waiting. And while he waited, he thought. Larry had hoped that the superstitions of Dickens would inspire him to write. Instead, the spirits he had summoned only gave him reason after reason to feel misguided. He'd wake up without a new story to write, he'd miss his deadline, and his dream of writing books would go the way of Jacob Marley. A sound tickled his ears. The world was still dark around him, but he got the feeling that he was somewhere, somewhere familiar. He felt a firm seat beneath him. The world rocked back and forth. Large rectangles of light lined up where the cells of the asylum had been. A moment later, it dawned on him. He was on a train car. The compartment was far more ornate and lavish than he was used to seeing in the modern day, perhaps even by Victorian standards. The men and women around him paid no heed to his presence, save for one figure seated next to him. It was a woman in a wedding dress, so old that the once white lace had turned a pale yellow. A veil covered her face, but beneath it, he could feel proud eyes staring at him. It was another Dickens character he knew. This one, from Great Expectations. Miss Havisham, I presume, Larry said, trying to sound casual rather than petrified of the spectral woman before him. The veil wrinkled as the woman beneath inclined her head. Where are we? Larry asked. Miss Havisham pointed a solitary finger forward. A few seats ahead of them sat Dickens, though not the vibrant man he had seen mere moments ago. His beard was grey and his hair was patchy. A sense of exhaustion seemed to hover over him. With him were two women. One of them, who couldn't have been more than twenty, looked on him adoringly. Miss Havisham finally spoke, her voice cold as steel. June 9th, 1865. You see before you the woman he chose over his wife 
men are all alike. Take, 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 leaving nothing but broken hearts behind them. Larry turned to her. Is that all you have to teach me? That Dickens was a cruel husband? Scrooge already told me that. The pale spectre sat back in her chair. Who's to say I'm here to teach you anything? You're the one who called us, remember? Silence passed between them, broken only by the shriek of the train wheels. Larry spoke up again. Listen, Amelia, I know why you don't like me. You're right to be mad at the cruelty of men, but, well, I was maybe a jerk to that guy on the train, but I've never been cruel. Have you not? She pointed, not at Dickens, but at the window. Looking through the glass, Larry saw not the passing countryside, but the interior of a study as clearly as if it were actually there. A man sat hunched over a desk, rendered a silhouette by the setting sun. His quill worked back and forth across the page, pausing only to take brief visits to its inkwell. As they watched, the man listed to the left and fell to the floor. Charles Dickens landed on the floorboards, groaning in pain. Spilled blue ink spread out beside him like a pool of blood. Then, either the scene disappeared or the train moved on. The study was replaced by the interior of Westminster Abbey. A small funeral ceremony, 14 people crowded around a coffin. There was no question as to whose it was. Larry felt an unexpected swell of emotion witnessing his hero's funeral. But the procession of images did not stop there. He saw performers reenacting scenes from Oliver Twist, Pickwick, and Copperfield. He saw glimpses of stage shows, films, and retellings. And then he saw himself. A child, no more than three or four, huddled next to a fireplace as his grandmother read him a Christmas carol on Christmas Eve. A lump rose in his throat. His grandmother. She was waiting for him back at home. These spirits weren't trying to teach him about Dickens at all. This was about him and how he'd chosen to neglect his family on Christmas. He pulled his gaze away from the window to the train car where Miss Havisham sat. Tell me, he said, is, is this my last chance to spend Christmas with my grandmother? The veiled woman shrugged. The train around them rattled and shook. A few seats ahead of them, Charles Dickens and his mistress looked around in concern. Larry paid the commotion only a little notice, grabbing Miss Havisham by the shoulders. Please, I don't know if this is a dream or if it's magic, but I want to know if this Christmas is truly my last chance to see her. The woman was implacable as ever, but her voice wavered as she said, There's nothing so cruel as love that goes unappreciated. A horrible screech of metal on metal came from below them. Miss Havisham grinned. It's time. Time for what? The train crash, 
It occurred exactly five years before his death. What's a good biography without a little excitement? Terror seized Larry's gut. The train car around them surged and shook. Everyone screamed. He toppled out of his seat and onto the floor of a rustic Airbnb. Larry looked around. There was the mahogany desk. There was the awkwardly positioned bed. There was the door that Dickens had stepped through last night. Morning sunlight poured through the open windows and he could already hear the faint sounds of a church bell ringing 7 a.m. on Christmas Day. He looked over to the desk and saw the teacup his grandmother had given him. Miss Havisham's words came back to him. There's nothing so cruel as love that goes unappreciated. Larry was up in a flash. He was packed in 15 minutes and at the train station in 30. He had to catch a train back home. He couldn't miss this Christmas with his family and especially could not miss a holiday with his grandmother. Without them, without her, anything he wrote would be worthless. The train car was surprisingly full for a Christmas morning and felt fuller still when Larry stopped to wish everyone a Merry Christmas. And when he found an empty seat, he found himself sitting by a familiar face. It was the young man who had performed for him the day before. From his expression, Larry could tell that the recognition was mutual. He felt shame redden his cheeks, but didn't let it deter him. Hey, it's Jim, right? Jim nodded, an apprehensive look on his face. Larry said, I'm sorry I was such a jerk the other day. You were really great, and I was not being very nice. I really wanted to ask, did you rhyme pagan with Fagan? Jim smiled and said that he had, and that Larry was the first one to notice the reference. The two of them talked literature the whole way back to London. During the final stretch of the route, Larry got up and danced along with Jim Beats to the delight of the other passengers. This time, when the two of them parted, Larry tipped the performer copiously and they exchanged phone numbers. He would have stayed on the train all day if he could, but he had a family to catch. Larry Hackett came through the door just as his family was sitting down to a late breakfast. He hugged and kissed them all and took a seat next to his grandmother, Nell. He savored Christmas that year and made sure he spent as much time as possible with his grandmother. From a certain point of view, he had found inspiration, just not the sort of inspiration he'd been expecting. Perhaps you know someone like Larry, someone who, even if they don't celebrate Christmas, needs to be shaken out of their selfishness. I hope for everyone's sake, that such people see spirits of their own before it is too late. Now, I'd like to quote the words of Jimmy Beats. 
That's all, my friends. I hoped you liked the show. If you can spare some cheer, let your loved ones know. Ask any artist, and they'll tell you that the process of creation can often be arcane and frustrating. To combat that, each has their own superstitions, their own little tricks to inspire the muse. This is true of poets, musicians, painters, and especially writers. To many, writing is a magical gift you can court. However, as today's story asserts, perhaps this is not the ideal way to go. True, Charles Dickens carried a compass everywhere so he could sleep facing north, but there's no evidence to suggest that he was doing this before he wrote his first story, even less to suggest it's what made him so good. For all his faults, Dickens' writing changed the world, especially the way we celebrate the holidays. So if you happen to be an aspiring writer, I have a Christmas gift for you, a piece of advice. If someone else tells you they have a ritual that'll make you into a best-selling author overnight, well, that's the real humbug. Go celebrate with your family. The magic will come. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until next year, be wary of the things you cannot explain. Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Superstitions was written by Robert Teamstra with writing assistance by Stacey Nemec and Greg Castro. Fact-checking by Adrian Romero and research by Brian Petras. I'm Alastair Murden. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself, as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time, and catch new episodes Mondays free and only on Spotify.